Hello, Theo102. Welcome to the Need to Know More podcast. This week, we're talking about reform. What a great word. Yes, we are continuing our conversation about what historians call the early modern era, which is the 1500s and 1600s. And we are talking about a really important piece of legislation that ended up shaping a lot of our world as we know it in terms of like who we are as Christians, even though it's not our country, the English Act of Supremacy. Mm, sounds very ominous. It, <laughs> it does sound kind of <laughs> ominous. Like whenever yeah. I hear the word supremacy, I'm like, oh no. I know, <laughs> I know. That word's hot right now. It's it's being talked it's about all over the place. Yes, yes. In our modern setting, our contemporary setting, we talk about white supremacy, and um, this is, well, you could argue it's, it's related to that in some ways, but this is actually, the English Act of Supremacy is about establishing King Henry, Henry VIII, very famous English king, as head of the Church of England. Oh, man. Hot take. Is that a good idea? Oh, it's wild. You know what? Well, he thought so. And in the- <laughs> I assume so. Yeah, in the video lecture, um, I talked, I, I gave a little bit of the kind of gossipy deets that went into establishing Henry as the king of the Church of England. And one of the things, I mean, if you think about it, students, this is a radical shift because before that, when we were covering the era known as Christendom, there were kings and rulers of different sections of Europe, but the church and the uh, established methods of authority in the church, the Roman Catholic church, they had um, distinction and in some ways could overrule kings and rulers in other parts of Amazing. of Europe and what we now know as Christendom. And this is a crazy thing in a lot of ways because Henry VIII says, no, there's not a church governance and earthly governance. I am the governance of both of everything. England. Why be the governor of one if you could be the governor of both the things and therefore all the things? Okay, hot take question number two. Yeah. Our Turning Points by Mark Knoll. Yes. Basically, he breaks the reform up into multiple chapters. Like mm -hmm. we were flying by like millions of years of history per chapter. In <laughs> and the then past, we slow down. Approximately millions of years. And then suddenly, like, do you think as a church historian that that this is worth really slowing down over? Like, why is he slowing down so much in these chapters to just these incidents? Well, you know, historians quibble about this all the time. And if I had my way in the world, if I had written this book, I probably would have slowed down for some some other stuff in the Middle Ages. Mm. But I can tell you why I think he does. And the reason why is because our country, so for readers in the U.S., which the vast majority of students in this class um, are are were raised um, in this cultural context. And so for readers in this context, we are really shaped by the big ideas that come out of this era. So I think the reason why he slows down, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the, the temptation of that and sort of the thing that I think your question flags, and it's really important to flag it, is that if you slow down in this era, you could say that you could give people the false impression that what's happening here is more important or even more theolog like theologically better. Right. And I don't really think that's the case, but it is certainly really influential in mm. our time because this idea of who should be in charge of the church and what um, should the church be able to be 
in control of in society? That's a question mm -hmm. that we are still talking about in the U.S. Now, there are these figures who are referred to, I gather, from the chapter mm -hmm. and just from little bits of scatterbrained <laughs> bad knowledge that I have about this topic mm -hmm. called, referred to as magisterial reformers. Yeah. Uh, it's a great word, and they're, isn't it? Like when I, cause, yeah, it is. When I think reform, I'm like Martin Luther. Good. Yes. I hang my hat on Martin Luther. The 1514 or 15, what was that date of the of the uh, the, the 95 theses? Some number like that. Mm -hmm. he, mm -hmm. he nails them up there. <laughs> I think Martin Luther dies in the 19, or 15, 1940s, 1540s or something like that. Yes, um, yes. So this is like early in his career. So I think of Luther and I'm like, okay, Luther, Luther, yes, Luther. Yes. But then there's, John Calvin, or as his name was really pronounced, Jean Calvin. <laughs> That's right. And then, because the he's, he's Swiss, Swiss French, okay. Uh -huh. And then, but then there are these other people, like lots of others. And mm -hmm. so I wondered if he was slowing down to just like highlight the fact that for a lot of us, there's like Martin Luther reform and maybe John Calvin, mm -hmm. if you're if you're getting to that. But then it's like, who are all these other people? So magisterial reformers, yeah. what's happening? Well, so magisterial reformers, and I think, the idea, uh, the word magisterial is just fun to say, but um, those are people. That was magisterial of you. <laughs> yeah. People should say that more who, often. Who are reformers who enjoyed, uh, kind of the, the baseline definition is they are reformers who enjoyed the support of the local leaders. So the magistrates. Mm -hmm. So Luther would count as one of those because he had um, assistance and help from the German princes. Mm -hmm. um, Calvin would definitely count because he had the help of the governors in his um, in in the city of Geneva, which was a city that was an adopted hometown um, that he had sort of a, a, a on again, off again relationship with. But his ideas about how to reform um, church and government really shaped the development of this this city, Geneva. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I bring that up, the reason why it's important is because a group of uh, Protestants from England traveled to Geneva in later years and were really shaped by it. And th then those people eventually moved to what was then known as the New World. Mm -hmm. They are the people who we talk about as Puritans. So oh, yes. they're really important uh, for understanding our, our own context. So those, th those are the people who supported John Calvin, another guy who I talked about in the lecture and you read a little bit about, um, Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli. Swiss guy. Yeah. I've heard of Zwingli. Also enjoyed the, the support of local leaders. And you can see why that's important in an era when the, the Roman Catholic church was not supporting reformers. They needed, they needed on a practical level shelter from, um, you know, the, the governing bodies in, in countries that were not friendly to reform uh, or the Protestant Reformation countries like France um, or Portugal or Spain. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was another kind of group in the little island country that we now know as the UK um, that they had their own take on it. The English reformers mm -hmm. were a little bit different and they were a little bit different in part because of how they broke away mm -hmm. because Henry VIII becoming the head of both the church and the state, it mm -hmm. just made it, it put a different flavor on how they ended up totally. reforming. So I, I think the story of the English reformers mm -hmm. is, is pretty interesting. And, and mm -hmm. I don't know, anytime you're talking about like a story that involves religion, violence, sex, power, 
you know, who's not interested in that? <laughs> the story of Henry VIII is wild. Uh, I'm interested in it. Right? So, okay. So with this, so what I'm hearing you say is these magisterial reformers, they're kind of like, they're connected to the state. Mm -hmm. They're connected to, 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 to authorities there. Yes. But that must be, that, that must be in contradistinction to other kinds of reformers. Like if you have like, I don't know if this is the right term, like radical reformers who yes. are like, no, right. we're not doing that. Yeah. The state and the church do not get your hands, get your filthy state hands off of my faith. 1000%. In fact, there are a lot of groups and um, we, our institution is deeply indebted to one of those groups. There are a lot of groups who say, whoa, we should not have reform that's involved with the powers and principalities of this world. One famous group um, known, they're called the Mennonites. Mm -hmm. um, they, they began in Europe and there are still really lively enclaves of Mennonite Christianity here in the U.S. And then a group of English people um, called Quakers mm -hmm. that were founded by a, a character named George Fox. Co not really. <laughs> Coincidentally related only to the uh, our university. Yes, our university is named I'm just, I'm just after kidding. this founding it's not a figure. It's not a coincidence. <laughs> named George Fox. Yeah, there are these people, um, English reformers in particular, the, the English people had a lot of um, radical types and um, there are a lot of different reasons for that, but there's a, a big umbrella term that a lot of historians use called dissenters. There were people who said, no, um, we don't want an established relationship uh, between the powers and principalities of, the, of this world and mm -hmm. the powers of the church. And there are lots of different versions of that. Quakers are just some of them. So, Well, you know, this leads to um, a question that I have or a thought maybe. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, I'm sort of like thinking about like all, how all this stuff went down in England and you were talking about it as an island country. And it leads mm -hmm. me to ask mm -hmm. questions like, why would this all go down? Why would this take on so many shapes and formats and, and splinters and so on in England exactly? And I wondered like, is there a geographical explanation? Like England is kind of just like this because it's this island place and be, just because of like various sorts of political factors. Is there like a spiritual reason? Did God, oh. wa did God want that to happen? <laughs> That's a really interesting in question. In England, exactly in England? I don't know. Oh man, you ask a question that I don't actually know the answer to. <laughs> but I, I can tell you why I think that, um, I, I, I have a reason why I think that they they did, which is I think that um, the, the people who were, the, the way that the Reformation happened in England mm. set English people on a course for that kind of, mm. of reform. And mm. this is the reason why, because um, King Henry VIII and eventually his daughter who ruled um, Queen Elizabeth, they um, one of the reasons why there was um, a, a reform movement that established a king as the head of the church is because there's a lot of civil unrest between Protestants and Catholics in mm. this period. There it wasn't a decided issue in king, in England like who the English people should be in terms of their Christianity. So um, uh, Henry VIII's daughter Elizabeth um, was. It partnered with um, a really important English reformer, a guy named Thomas Cranmer, mm. and they created a version of Christianity that's kind of tried to take 
both Roman Catholicism and Protestantism kind of in their minds, it was like a mashup, the best of, ah, that's and a created good idea. this new thing. I see. Um, and they had a principle that guided them called Via Medea or the middle way. Ah. And they tried to create a sort of compromise. And I think in creating that compromise, then people, it sort of opened it up a little bit. That's what I think. Okay. So it's like, Hey, Catholic or Protestant, this is what's happening. They're, they're even like, wars of religion that are going to come out of this and it yeah. will, will tear Europe apart. Very, very painful. And so yeah. some people were like, hey, Catholic or Protestant, why don't we do a little bit of both? That's right. I think so. I <laughs> why think don't so. we kind of do but it? You know what? I think also though, they were like, they were, um, have, they were bringing their own particular position on the Bible mm -hmm. to this. And they had an idea um, about how the Bible would guide them. I mean, you're an expert in the Bible and, in communities that study the Bible, is it surprising to you how many how many versions of um, like how many versions of of bodies of believers can be created from the Bible? Oh no, not at all. Because um, it, I, you know, and this is this is like a long debate one could even have a discussion, a long like discussion, well into the night by campfire <laughs> with tea in hand. Yes, to ask oneself. Does the Bible fundamentally present a single, a single spiritual vision, oh. or and it, and if it did, would that or if it did or if it didn't, yeah, would that even be a good thing? So I'm not even trying to put in framing the question of value judgment on it. Like you could say, yeah, I'm a Christian, and the Bible actually presents several spiritual visions, yeah, and yeah. they're all legitimate and good. And in fact, God and God's wisdom and the, the wisdom of the spirit sees that in fact, we must go in these many different directions. And thus we have the many communities and thus the reformation and all these things are an outworking of God's plan for the world. We can't mm -hmm. all just be a part of one thing. And God knows that about us. We could, we did for a while. It was fine, <laughs> but it's not the thing anymore. So the, the alternative, I guess, problem with it is you'd have to look at people who are in good faith and legitimately clinging to certain parts of the Bible or certain spiritual visions within it and say that they are essentially, I mean, in an extreme form, you could say that they're like satanically deluded. Mm. But that requires that you look at other Christians and say, you are so wrong that you're satanically deluded and you can't read the Bible the way that you do. Um, Christians do want to reserve the right to say to each other, you shouldn't read the Bible like that. But the problem is, you know, if you're looking at someone, it's easy, sometimes some people and some movements and some, you know, strains of faith maybe are easy to dismiss. Mm -hmm. I don't know, oh, students, mm -hmm. if you've ever had like a friend who like, you know, maybe they had certain ideas and you were just like, you know what? You're so dumb and <laughs> They're weird. They're so wild. You're so wild. I don't even care. It's so easy to dismiss your ideas. Right. Because, but I bet you've run into somebody in your life or you will soon where it's like they're really different from you. Mm -hmm. They totally disagree with you, but it's not that easy to just dismiss them because yes. of maybe the faithfulness or the just like the intellectual firepower behind what they're saying. And you can't just be like, oh, ha ha ha, that's just dumb. So I think that, I think that the Bible could very well allow for that, although maybe it doesn't. I mean, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, it's a really tough one. You know, it's funny that you bring that up because I was thinking about, um, the, the figures of Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli, they tried to, um, you know, they were these two powerhouse reformers, um, and they tried to come together and find a way to agree on who they were and who the church, um, they thought the church ought to be. But in the end, their disagreements about how they interpreted the Bible were too uh, big for them to be in full 
communion, essentially, mm-hmm. with one another. And so I think even in the early days of the Reformed tradition, I mean, a lot of students, I, I mentioned this in the in the video or the video lecture. We the book talks about this. Um, reformers like Martin Luther didn't want to leave the Roman Catholic Church, but mm-hmm. um, they they wanted to stay in communion with one another. But in the end they found that their interpretations of the Bible did not allow them. They couldn't, in in good conscience, mm-hmm. um, stay together. And I think that that's something... I often wonder what people like Martin Luther or, or John Calvin or Ulrich Zwingli or Thomas Cranmer, any of those big, big famous figures would think of where we're at now. And I, I think they would probably feel some dismay mm-hmm. at the variety. Yeah. It's so tough because there's a part of like Luther in the spirit of some of these dudes mm-hmm. where it just it feels very divisive. It feels like maybe they would have loved it. Like they would have been like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, um, it could it could allow for a kind of chicken and egg type conundrum mm-hmm. where you're like, okay, does your reading of the Bible determine like, oh, you know what? I don't want to have to do this. Right. I don't, you know, I don't want to break up with you, but my reading of the Bible determines that I must. I'm so sorry. <laughs> right. But or is it that, you know, the person determines that they're going to break up with you and then uses the Bible as a kind of supporting art you know, a supporting, um, a, a supporter, a kind of like a sidekick for their cause right, to right. do things that they were already going to do anyway for reasons actually that had nothing to do with this pure reading of the Bible. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important. You bring up a lot of good points and I think it's important for us to remember that, um, people rarely do things for one reason, right? Mm. So I think that, yes, there were, um, people were devout and trying to live according to their convictions, but they were also living in their world. And there were Mm. lots of different reasons why people embraced hardline stances on the Bible or a particular doctrine that if we're not generous with them, we might be tempted to think that they were somehow like Mm. impure. Mm -hmm. But I think that the reality is from my perspective, this is me as a historian. I think people are just complex and they do Mm. things for a lot of different reasons. Oh, wow. You know, I I saw a panel discussion at this university some years ago. It was about Mm -hmm. a really hard topic and there was like a debate and like a lot of people were there and it was really tough. And one of the panelists, I do remember something that she did say, she was one of our, our, our faculty members in counseling and psychology. And she said, you know, here's a rule that I live by as a therapist or even as a Christian keep people complex. Oh, I love that. I thought that that was really nice. I mean, sometimes, yeah, maybe you're like, I need to simplify. I'm getting too complicated. Sure. That's something. Sure. sure. But I was like, my own tendency as a person sometimes is to see myself as very complex. And then other people, other people have one (laughs) motive, right? One reason, Yeah. you know? And so it's like, Hey, maybe I should treat other people with the kind of complexity that I would want to be treated with. Like in other words, the golden rule that Jesus repeats, you know? Yeah, do I, to people what you'd have them do to you or don't do to them what you don't want them to do to you, like however way you put it. Like, I think that's a really good policy for thinking about the Reformation. It was a, a big time of, of upheaval, as I mentioned last week in the lecture. And so um, not just upheaval theologically, but a lot of social and political upheaval. And so mm-hmm. um, the the folks, um, you, you know, some, some people read the English act of supremacy as just this massive power grab mm-hmm. that was meant to create a nationalistic ethnocentric national colonial power church. And right. did it do those things? Well, yes, it did. Um, and also it did a lot of other things as well. Mm-hmm. And the people who were, um, 
the Protestant voices that believed very strongly Mm -hmm. that England ought to be Protestant, um, they were willing to put their lives on the line, as were the people who believed that Christianity or that that England ought to remain Roman Catholic and be in in communion with the Roman Catholic Church. So Mm. people were... um, you know, it was it was a complex time, people doing things for a lot of different reasons. One of the things that um, they were hoping to accomplish with the establishment of a Church of England was a unified church. Mm-hmm. And they did that. One of the big instruments for that was a, a thing called the Book of Common Prayer. It's good if you can have a writing that helps yeah. solidify your thing. Martin Luther, he's got his 95 theses, lots of other theological writings. Same thing with John Calvin. Mm-hmm. And you kind of have to say yes or no to that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't know if you've ever been in a family argument or something where someone just says, let's pray. (laughs) (laughs) And and not a family argument, but I've been in other arguments. Yeah. Right. Something, some version of that. People say, let's pray. And then all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, grumble, grumble, grumble. But they close their eyes and they they pray. In some ways, the Book of Common Prayer accomplishes that on a grand scale. That's what I do whenever my <laughs> wife disagrees with me. We just have an argument. I'm like, hey, let's just pray. Let's just pray let's, about it. Let's stop. Let's stop <laughs> this argument, which I'm losing. And let's pray. The, well, I think the real magic of the Book of Common Prayer is that it kind of does that on like a, a massive national level. Mm-hmm. And so I thought maybe it'd be fun for us to pray one of the prayers. Here's a, a Book of Common Prayer, uh, prayer for the essentially the unity of the church. Oh, nice. It's a short one. It's a short one, just a paragraph here. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. do we even have sentences to divide up? Oh, yeah, we do. I guess we can still do it. This comes in a section called Prayers for the Church, Mm -hmm. um, subsection 7, for the church. So this is is specifically a prayer for the church and makes sense given our themes here for today. Um, Do you want to start? Sure. Gracious Father, we pray for thy holy Catholic Church. Fill it with all truth, in all truth, and with all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is an error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, strengthen it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, reunite it. For the sake of Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Savior. Amen. Now, can I ask you about yeah. this phrase? Gracious Father, we pray for thy holy Catholic Church. I was once in a small prayer meeting with an individual, and we were saying the creed. We said the Apostles' Creed at one point. Yes. And at one point, part of the part of the Apostles' Creed is, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, da 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 One holy, ca- there's the word Catholic Church, and this mm-hmm. person was very put off by that phrase, oh, Catholic yeah. Church, because they mm-hmm. thought that what we were being forced to pray was that we had allegiance to the Catholic Church as in, what, the we, would, Roman what we would now Church. call the Roman Catholic Church mm-hmm. or like a denom- like the largest denomination of Christianity, <laughs> right. namely Roman Catholics who say the mass and all the stuff. Right. Why what, was that person correct in there? What, like, what does this mean as opposed to what that person thought it meant? Oh, that's such a great question. Yes. Um, in this context, it basically, it, it, it means the literal definition of Catholic, which is just universal. So mm-hmm. the idea is that there is a universal essence to um, the church, and that's what they're they're after. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Catholic is one of those words. I think it's a lot like the word evangelical. Mm-hmm. It can be used a lot of different ways, I and see. people use it, and sometimes they don't even understand what they mean when they say it. And just like as in the term evangelical, it can be a little off putting to people, sure, uh, depending on what they think you mean by it. Well, and I've 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 run across a lot of students, and this comes up a lot at a place like George Fox, where 
we have a lot of students who don't come from Catholic backgrounds, mm-hmm. even though it's the biggest group of Christians worldwide as a single group. It's a tiny um, portion of our students. It's body. a tiny portion of our students, you know, shout out to you Catholic students yeah, out yeah. there. And a, a little, <laughs> the 10% and in our- A little defense of the Catholic students here, I want to say, because I do see often, I hear students use phraseology like this that really drives me crazy. Students will say, oh yeah, well, are you a Christian or a Catholic? Ouch. As though they think that Catholics aren't Christians or that they reserve the term Christian for themselves, but then Catholics are something else. Mm-hmm. So we should just kind of like nip this in the bud to the extent that you trust us as intellectual and spiritual authorities, a listener. <laughs> right. Catholics are Christians. They are yes. arguably the original, <laughs> the, the OG most historic, Christians. they're the OG Christians. They are the <laughs> OP, the original poster That's that. of That's the it. Christians. And so other groups are like splinters. Now you may, if you're not a Roman Catholic, you may very well believe in the spiritual rightness of your denomination vis-a-vis Catholicism. Mm-hmm. There may be aspects of Catholicism that you don't agree you with, don't agree with you yes. make you uncomfortable, whatever. And if you're a Catholic, maybe there are things that make you uncomfortable about people who are not Catholic. Totally par for the course. It doesn't mean though, in the way that most of us would talk as Christians together, it doesn't mean that you exclude Catholics from being Christians, right? Yes. Yes. That would be, that's kind of a, that would be a pretty weird move. Like you're really, if you do that, you're almost like you're going nuclear on this issue. Yeah. And there's a lot of historic reasons why Americans in particular are uh, typically like historically kind of anti-Catholic. And some, most of that just happens to be based on the fact that we are, were founded uh, like the largest, most influential groups historically in this country were Protestant. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of Protestants, as we know, because we did the uh, Martin Luther insult generator. Oh, yeah. Like there's some sharp rhetoric, sharp anti-Catholic sharp. rhetoric. Sharp. Um, so we inherited some of that stuff. So there's a lot of reasons for that, but I am in, of course, full agreement with you that we need to include, have an expansive definition of who is, um, who counts as Christian. So, um, hopefully this prayer helps us to think that way this mm. week. It helps me. <laughs> <laughs>